We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas and now New Year's. Um, But all of this is part of a larger calendar called the church calendar. Now, by show of hands, who is familiar with the church calendar? All right, we got, we got a few people, kind of roughly. And all of you are familiar at some level, right? Because you celebrate Christmas and you celebrate Easter every year. But this is all part of a larger church calendar. What is a church calendar? Why do we do it, first of all? Uh, it, it's essentially a way to order our yearly lives around remembering what God has done around the story. This is something that the people of God have been doing for three to 4,000 years. Ever since the time of the Exodus, the people of God have been yearly practicing things to remember what God has done. Our particular church calendar that we follow uh, is almost 2,000 years old. Uh, It kind of shifted around 360 AD, I believe, uh, when they chose December 25th as the day we would celebrate Christmas. And so you'll see from this, hopefully you probably can't see the smaller months in the center, uh, but this is essentially the full church calendar Uh, at at a wide scope. We have the time of Advent, which we just celebrated, and now we're stepping into the time of Epiphany, which is, I'm sure, less familiar to most of you, but it's a time where we learn more about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. We'll talk a little bit more about it in just a second, and then we go into Lent and this last little Holy Week, uh, and then Easter, which we're all familiar with, celebrating the resurrection of Christ, and then Pentecost, Uh, celebrating the spirit of Christ. Now, Epiphany, we're in that time now. What are we celebrating? What are we thinking about? Well, we're thinking about what is known as the manifestations of Christ, or really answering these two questions. Who is Christ, and what has he come to do? And we learn these lessons, that Christ is the divine son of God, And he has come to save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We learn these two lessons from three particular stories. The first one, we lump in with Christmas. But it's actually the traveling of the Magi. It's typically a story celebrated at the beginning of the time of Epiphany. Because it speaks these two messages really clearly. The Magi are coming and proclaiming that Jesus is the divine Son of God. But not just that, these travelers are coming from a foreign land, showing that God's heart all along has been for the nations to save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We also learn these lessons from two other stories, the baptism of Jesus and the the miracles at the wedding feast of Cana. So we will look at some of those stories as we continue through this time. But today, we're going to look at these two questions and these two answers and find incredible answers in the passage that we're in today of who is Jesus? What is he about? And so let's turn now to Luke 2, verse 
but we're going to start in 41 is where we're going to start. Now, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. Now, I'm just going to kind of walk through this verse by verse and kind of unpack it as we go. So keep looking at the context as it's in front of you. Uh, But this verse shows us, Luke has continued to put before us, that this family is a devout family for God. They go every year to the feast of Passover. And and this isn't a small trip. This is a three-day trip on foot. You can see the map up here. used it a couple weeks ago, you can see how far this trip is, a three-day journey on foot. And and in the law, it was only required that men would go to the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem every year. But here, Mary and Jesus are going along with him. Just another clue that the original hearer would have said, oh, this this is a devout family for God. And it would have also clued the hearer into the fact that Jesus was raised knowing the scriptures. So this is a very devout family. Let's continue in verse 42. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So they are going up every year to the feast of the Passover to remember the time when God passed over, the time of the Exodus, when God passed over the the firstborn son of the Israel. So they're going up every year to remember this. And now Jesus is 12 years old. Luke is the only writer that includes any kind of teenage years story of Jesus. This is the only clue we have between baby Jesus and 30-year-old Jesus in the Gospels. And so it's a really interesting insight. But why 12 years old? In the Jewish community, age 13 was when a boy became a man and was held fully accountable to the law. It's an indictment on our own culture, probably a little bit, but the important part is at age 12, leading up to 13, that whole year was the year of preparation for them becoming a man. And so often they would uh, become an apprentice of their father. They would learn their father's trade within that 12th year of their life. So that is very significant in the story that we're going to continue to read. He's learning and he's all about his father's trade. Let's continue in verse 43. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, you may not be the greatest parents in the world, but you've never lost the Son of God for three days, as we're going to find out. There's grace to be had for you here. <laughs> Receive it. There's something that we can relate to here in this story, though, too. I mean, if you have been a parent or if you have watched children, at the moment they can crawl, we've all had this experience. They're right there playing happy. I turn over here for a second. They are nowhere to be found, right? We've all kind of, we can relate with this story. Now, hopefully, you have never lost your child for three days, but we can still relate to this feeling that Mary and Joseph are having. 
At the same time, there are some cultural differences here. Of course, they're traveling in a large group. It's on foot, three-day travel. And so uh, a family, a large family, acquaintances, actually could be much like this church, right? If we were going, if Cincinnati was Jerusalem and we needed to go there every year on foot, we would probably all just go together, right? Family and acquaintances traveling together. And so at this age, you know, whether it's cultural differences or Mary is just has this intense faith and trust in God that he's protecting Jesus or in her relatives, whatever it might be, it still happens. Jesus is left in Jerusalem. And then we continue in the next verse. After three days... They found him in a temple. Now, this is a total of three days. So they're traveling away for a day. They realize he's not there. They travel back for a day. And on the third day, they find Jesus in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So for the first time, we see what Jesus is doing, what he's kind of about Now, this was a common practice in the day that students would sit amongst the teachers and and they would ask them questions and they would learn the things of God from these teachers at the temple. And so, you know, some might say that Jesus is asking questions here and listening just to, to see where they're coming from so he can really show them what's right. I don't know that that's completely the truth. I think that, that Luke is pointing out here that Jesus is actually learning the scriptures, He is learning from these people. He's listening to them. He's asking questions. That is part of what is happening here. But also, Jesus, different than the other students, is giving answers to some of these things. So much so that in the next verse it says, and all who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. I like the way that this commentator explains this. He says, Jesus is not only soaking up the teachers of these sages, but he is engaging in dialogue with them. One may presume that Jesus and the teachers were absorbed with the task of discerning God's will by discussing matters of scripture and tradition. So together with them, he is also kind of giving insight into these things that they don't understand, but he is also learning from them. Jesus has an astonishing understanding of Scripture, which we're going to continue to see as he refutes Satan in the temptation in the wilderness and as he confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees in chapters to come. Jesus has an astonishing understanding of Scripture and kind of clues us in to what a life devoted to God looks like. Even at a very young age, his life is completely Devoted to God. All right, verse 48. Let's continue. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them. Now again, this should give us a little bit of pause. We should take a deep breath here, because for the first time, we're going to hear what this God-man says. You know, we've heard what the prophets are saying about him. We've heard what Gabriel and the other angels and Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna, we've heard what they have to say about it. What does Jesus say even about himself? 
Jesus replies, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, don't miss the significance of this statement. I think it is the climax of this particular story. But Jesus, at age 12, and probably even earlier, is fully aware that he is the son of God. I think this kind of gets lost on us a little bit because we often begin our prayers with, Father. But we forget sometimes that the only way in which we can come to God, the God of the universe, and call him Father is because we are united in Christ, adopted as children. Prior to this, we see a few examples, a few illustrations of he is the Father to the fatherless, but people don't address the God of the universe as father. And so this would have been shocking to them. The the teachers probably at best would be thinking, foolish child, you know, son of God. Joseph is probably having the ultimate stepdad experience. It's not talking about me. It's not talking about me. I don't know. Just trying to imagine the situation here. Um, But what is their response to what Jesus says? Because it's going to clue us in a little bit more to what he's actually saying here. They respond in verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that that he spoke to them. Now, why didn't they understand? That doesn't really make sense because you're talking mostly about Mary and Joseph here. Mary is fully aware that Jesus is the Son of God, right? She was there. She's fully aware of this. So it shouldn't really be surprising to her when Jesus would say, I must be about my father's house. I must be in my father's house. It's not really that confusing until we go back and try to translate this from the original language because it helps us to see it just a little bit more clearly. Literally, this statement, what Jesus is saying, is I must be about my father's, that's what he says. Kind of confusing, right? I must be about my father's. You see, there's no noun in the sentence. We translate it as house because it kind of fits in the context of they're looking for him in a location. And so we put the word house in there to, to give it a noun. But Jesus doesn't use a noun, Now, does that make you think of any other time in which God speaks, and it's kind of confusing because he doesn't give us a noun, clues us in maybe even to Moses talking to God at the bush, and he says, who should I say sent me? And God says, I am. We need a noun. We need something to understand this by. I am that I am. You see, there's no, there's no noun. There's no way to pin down who God is to something that we can understand. And in a similar way, Jesus is doing that here. I must be about my Father. And so this could also be translated, I think, even a little better. I must be about my Father's will, my Father's business. What my Father is about, I am about. 
And we see this over and over in Luke's gospel. He uses this phrase, it is necessary that I, connected with Jesus talking about his Father's will, we see it over and over in the, in the book of Luke. And it often leaves those around Jesus very confused, not understanding what is happening. But from the beginning of time, through Jesus becoming a man, even to now, as he sits at the right hand of God, his ultimate priority is the will of the Father. And here's a 12-year-old boy. He understands that. And he is proclaiming that. This is Jesus' purpose and his passion. This is his pursuit of all of his existence, that he would be about his Father's will. He submits to the Father willingly. And as he's here on earth, it often leaves those around him confused. Let's continue. Verse 51. And when he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was, he was submissive to them. So just as Jesus is submissive to the Father, um, he is not disobedient to his parents, yet he is submissive. And this verse ends with saying, and his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart. We've heard this phrase uh, before, and I, I think it's not only to show us that Mary is thinking about these things, but I think Luke is also encouraging the reader to treasure up these things in our hearts as well. Because what Luke is doing here, as he masterfully writes this account, is he is foreshadowing for us the very next time that Luke writes Jesus in the temple. So if we think in this account, uh, Jesus is fully devoted to the Father's will. His parents are in great distress at the loss of their child. They don't understand what's happening, but they find him again three days later. You're starting to see the connection. The very next time that Luke records Jesus in the temple is directly before his crucifixion, where Jesus is fully committed to the will of his Father. And his parents are in great distress, and they don't understand, but they find him again three days later. Luke is setting this story up for us so that we can understand this grand scheme of God as Jesus is fully committed to his Father's will, and we see it pointing forward to the crucifixion and the resurrection. All right, and then we get to this last verse of chapter 2, which is a summary, really, of the greatest part of Jesus' life. So this kind of echoes what we read at the end of last week's sermon, which summarized the first 12 years of Jesus' life. And so the majority of Jesus' life on earth is summed up in one phrase. What is it? Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, wouldn't you like that to be a summary statement for your life? Increasing in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and with man. We'll come back to that as we think about time. But let's look at a few other things here. Uh, Increased in wisdom. What's the definition of wisdom? We typically define it today as knowledge applied, right? But in Scripture, we see that it is connected intimately with the personhood of 
God, of the Father. So it's knowing and doing God's will. That is what wisdom means in Scripture. And so it's, it's no accident that as Jesus is proclaiming here that I must be about my Father's will. It's what I've always been about. It's what I'm about. It's what I will be about for eternity future. He says that he increases in wisdom, in the knowledge and the application of his Father's will. So let's learn just a little bit more because this is where things get a little bit fun. Let's learn just a little bit more about the person of Jesus Christ. He is, as we read earlier in Philippians 2, he is fully God in the same nature as God, yet he is fully man. Right? We see that here in this passage. He's, he's growing. He is fully man. And so how do we hold these two things together? How do we hold these two truths together? This great mystery of the person of Jesus Christ is intimately tied up within the great mystery of the Trinity itself. There's nothing that we can explain it by that completely helps us to understand it, but it's fun to continue to talk about it and learn about it. Uh, and so let's just dive into that just a little bit. In History, the danger with this one has been to lean too far to one side or the other. Early on, they would say that Jesus uh, would confound his teachers by knowing the alphabet and language before they even taught it to him. Or he would do like magic tricks as miracles with his fellow students. That's not really what we see here in Scripture. So they would say his divinity was shown in his humanity in such a way that everyone, even as a child, could say, wow, this guy's amazing. That's not exactly what we're seeing in Scripture. Jesus was fully man. And so he humbled himself, actively taking on the form of human which means he had all the same physical limitations that we have. He had to learn. He had to grow. He had to mature and eat and breathe. He was fully man. But our danger today is going the opposite direction, saying, oh, you know, he was, he was a good man. He was a great teacher, a good religious leader. But God himself, I don't know about that. That's our danger today. Luke doesn't give us that option. C.S. Lewis is famously quoted as saying that if Jesus says he's Lord, he can't be a great teacher and just a great teacher. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is indeed Lord. But really, there's only two options. Either he is the divine son of God or he's not. That's what Luke is, is putting before us. He either, either Jesus is the divine son of God or he is not. Follow me on this gross oversimplification. If Jesus were not fully God, he could not have lived a perfect life and couldn't be this sufficient once for all sacrifice for sin. If Jesus were not fully man, he couldn't have been the blood sacrifice, which is required to atone Person. This God-man is the necessary mediator between God and man. Which brings us to an interesting question. If he's all the time fully God, fully man, how does someone who's omniscient, who knows all things, how does he learn something? 
right? That one will get you thinking for a while. <laughs> well, like I said, this great mystery of the God-man is wrapped up within the mystery of the Trinity. I'm gonna quote just two individuals who are much smarter than myself to help us try to understand this, and it's gonna bring us right back to where we've been. D.A. Carson says, the Son of God abandoned any use of his divine prerogatives and capabilities, which, as a man, he would have not enjoyed, unless his heavenly Father gave him direction to use such prerogatives. He, therefore, would not use his powers to turn stones into bread for himself. That would have been to vitiate or damage his identification with human beings and, therefore, to abandon his mission. For human beings do not have instant access to such solutions. His mission prohibited him from arrogating or delegating to himself the prerogatives rightly his. But if that mission required him to multiply loaves for the sake of 5,000, he did so. Even his knowledge was self-confessedly limited. And he's referring here to when Jesus said, I don't know the hour which I will return. J.I. Packer picks up with this thought and says, just as Jesus did not do all that he could have done because certain things were not his father's will, remember this is what Jesus is all about, so he did not consciously know all that he might have known, but only what the father willed him to know. His knowing, like the rest of his activity, was bounded by Jesus' active submission by the father's will. And therefore, the reason why he was ignorant of, for instance, the date of his return was not that he had given up the power to know all things at the incarnation, but that the Father had not willed that he should have this particular piece of knowledge while on earth. Clear as mud? Jesus even in his self-confession in this passage, is saying that my greatest priority in life, in existence, is the Father's will. And it's of greater in priority to me than accessing all of my divine abilities. This applies even to the cross his love for us, and reconciling us to the Father. He says that is of greater priority to me than accessing all of my divine abilities, which he could have done. Think of it. At the cross, as Jesus is being beaten and carrying this cross up and being pegged to the cross, moment by moment, Jesus is choosing to prioritize his Father's will to reconcile us to himself over this fully human body which is in great agony. He chooses his Father's will over accessing this ability that he could just stop it all at any moment because he is God. He prioritizes the Father's will all of the time. Which brings us back to time. What do we do with our time? Are you starting to track how I'm connecting this here? 
Time, as an untimely death often reminds us, is very precious, and it should take great intentionality from us, great focus, great purpose. And so as we come to to this time, a, a new year, even a new decade, it's a great time to evaluate, you know, what have I done over the past year? What have I done over the past 10 years? These are just great markers for us to evaluate where we've been and to look forward and make goals. So if you haven't made a New Year's resolution, or maybe scratch that, don't, don't use that language. Uh, maybe if you haven't made a God-honoring intentional goal or goals for your life, do so. Do so. Moses, in Psalm 90, writes, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Again, what is wisdom? A heart of knowing and doing God's will. Teach us to number our days that we may know and do God's will. So that's what our time should be about. Why do so many New Year's resolutions fail? You start up in January, everybody's at the gym, right? Those who go to the gym normally, this is what my friends tell me. Everybody who goes to the gym normally, they don't go the first week in January, right? Because there's no room to work out because everyone's there. I haven't had that experience myself, but I should, right? This, this is good to be active. Um, but why, do, why does that fall off after the first couple of weeks? Or right in February, it's back to kind of how it was. Why do these New Year's resolutions fail? Often because they are rooted in my will and not rooted in God's will. So what is God's will for us? We find it in Scripture, and there's, there's a lot of places you can go to to find God's will for us, but you can start with the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is God's will for you. And you can take the, the love your neighbor, and you can apply it in every platform or relationship that God has given you. So once you get done with that, you let me know. And that should keep us busy for a while. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So love my coworkers and, and my wife or my husband and my, my children and, and people at church, right? How do, I, how do I live this out in every platform that God has given me? All right, so let's just apply this real quickly to one example, and that of health, because this is the most common New Year's resolution that we see, probably because Thanksgiving and Christmas are full of wonderful treats, and so we need to jump back on this health bandwagon. Uh, but it's the most common one, and so let's look at it just to kind of see the difference between these motivations. Is it my will, or is it God's will? So health, we're talking about activity, we're talking about food, we're talking about even sleep. Most of the time, we make these resolutions for, to better ourselves, to feel better about ourselves, even to be perceived better by other people, right? We're doing the right thing. They're looking at me. It's kind of a fear of man thing, and they they should look up to me for some level of respect or even out of just this self-motivation and grit. You know, I've got it. I can do it. Oftentimes, these are what our New Year's resolutions are surrounded around, myself, But what does a God-honoring, intentional goal look like? 
So you can fill in whatever you want at the end of this sentence, but you ask the question, what is God's will for my health? That's the one we're going to look at here. Well, our bodies are a gift, right? So they fall under the category of stewardship. How am I going to steward this body and what God has given me? Uh, why do I take care of this God body? Okay, so let's put it back in the, in the categories of God's will for us to love God. Now, why do I take care of this body and be healthy? To love God, to know him, to be able to read his word, to hear his word for as long as possible, to praise him for as long as possible. So we can love God to the greatest of our abilities. We take care of our health and to love others, to to serve others better and to know them better for as long as possible. And that's in every relationship. So pull it out, Uh, loving my wife well, serving her well for as long as I can. That's why I take care of my health. For Declan, like he's still little uh, and he's almost to the place where he can outrun me, you know? I'm like, I need to take care of myself so that I can outrun him and he's trying to keep up with me for as long as possible so that I can take care of him and, and show him what, it, what it's important about taking care of health, to be a good example to him even. So loving others well. So when this is our motivation for our goals, it's a better foundation for taking off. Now, there are just a couple of other tips that I want to throw in there that have been helpful for me in making goals and keeping goals in my life. Uh, and this one, I'm trying to think how long ago it was. It was probably in college when I was encouraged to do this. Uh, if your goal is just for this year, it's probably going to fail. If it's not rooted in God's will, if it's just this year, what you need to do is look at your entire life. What do you want to accomplish? What what is God's will for your entire life? What are the things he's called you to do and be faithful in? What does that look like? You can even go to your eulogy if you would like. What is going to be said at my eulogy? Does that make sense? Then you start to pare it back. Okay, what does it look like over the next 10 years? This is a great year to do this. Over the next decade... By 2030, how do I want to have grown in my knowledge of Scripture? How do I want to have bettered myself and served those around me better in the next 10 years? What does that look like? So these are still pretty loose goals by this point. Then you start to pare it down. The next five years. And then the next year, what does it look like? And how can I practically do this in the next months ahead, stepping in that direction, in the next week, in these days How do I do this? And so there are some incredible planners out there that help with this. Uh, The Full Focus Planner is one of them. Uh, The Franklin Covey System. There's lots of them out there that can help us think of our goals in large. Because when you have that large goal in mind, it helps keep that motivation of, of moving forward day by day in that direction. Um. Just a few other things. This one was really helpful for me. Uh, make what you want to do 15 seconds easier to do and make what you don't want to do 15 seconds harder to do. That make sense? They've shown if you make it 15 seconds easier to do, you're much more likely to do it. So put your Bible and your, your journal or whatever it is in a spot that's easy to access. It's ready to go the next morning when you wake up. It's even open to where you're going to study and where you can write. You always have a pen there. Just make it easier to do what you want to do. Make what you don't want to do 
watching too much Netflix, harder to do, you know, sign out of it every time or, or something. You have to figure out how 15 seconds make it harder to do. It's been a very helpful tool for me. So let's bring this all back. What if we learned about Jesus today? That he is, even as a 12-year-old, he's proclaiming that he is always about the Father's will. This God-man reveals to us that his existence is all about fulfilling the will of God, the Father. So let us be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that you have revealed through your word uh, such incredible truths to, that we can get a glimpse to understand who you are, who Christ is, and what he is about, and that it motivates our existence. It motivates every step that we take from day to day. Be with us even throughout this next week if we think about our goals, if we, uh, what it is that you put on our hearts and you've called us to. Uh, may we be intentional about every moment that you give to us here on the earth, that we may glorify you and enjoy you more. Be with us, and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.